This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. In evolution, you only have to be good enough. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules... It's a call-in show, so if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, the number to dial is 470-ASK-BILL. That's 470-275-2455. Ask-BILL, 470-275-2455. You can keep up with me on the electric internet to find out when to call. As always, you can also send us your questions and comments at askbillnye.com. And once again, I am joined, of course, by science writer, editor, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill Nye. Uh, It's so good to be here. And, you know, Bill, remind me, um, what's your favorite thing? I mean, your favorite thing in the world besides Bill Nye. I I think I know what you're driving at. It's evolution. Yes, yes, yes. That's the The thing. The fact of life. Evolution explains why we're here. And along this line, Corey, today... We are joined by an expert in genetics and evolution, Dr. Molly Pizvorsky. Welcome to Science Rules, Dr. Pizvorsky. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Now, Molly, uh, you know, just, I mean, I'm sure our listeners are completely familiar with with evolutionary uh, population genetics, but uh, can you just explain, you know, Population just, 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 in case the, just in case anybody just listening some, is not familiar with population genetics, yeah. right. maybe you could tell us a little just bit about. Case. Yeah, just yes. in case. Um, so, population genetics is uh, the study of genetic differences of heritable differences among individuals and across species. Whereas, What's the difference between population genetics and genetics? So we're interested in the processes as they play out in populations. We want to understand genetics is about sort of transmission within families and those rules. Um, We're interested in how those processes play out in populations to bring about adaptations, to bring about new species um, over generations and generations. Well, now this is interesting. How How do you model it? Right. So the thing that's interesting about population genetics is that um, the field is interested in things like uh, questions about why some people are taller than others, um, what the genetic uh, differences that contribute to differences in height, and why people 
uh, feel uh, differently about, say, cilantro. Some people find it soapy. Some people find it delicious. And these kinds of questions, people have asked them long before we had any data. And when they started thinking about them, um, they sort of thought about them from first principles. They thought, well, how could that come about? There must be mutations. These mutations must get transmitted. They must become more or less common over time. And so just from first principles, they built these mathematical models that describe these processes. And now, a century after they started asking these questions, we have a ton of data and we can start to actually test the extent to which these models uh, were accurate. Well, what you want in any theory, if I understand this, is to be able to predict, right? Right. so uh, have you predicted something that's come true? Yeah, it's actually kind of amazing how well these thought experiments have turned out to to guide um, kind of our, our data analysis today. So, for example, there's theory that's super old now, about 80 years old, about why there are disease alleles in, in human populations. Why are there disease alleles? Why don't they just disappear? Let's Corey, for a Corey, if Let's... you're like me, you have so often asked, why are there disease alleles? I do frequently ask if that. If only but... I was clear on what a disease allele is, was. I, th- right. I think we need to define what an allele is. Sure, yeah. sorry. I don't mean that. I, I should no, say actually no, disease. No, don't be sorry. Molly, bring it on. Go wild. We, we we love learning new things. That's why we're here. Right. So the question is, why are there mutations in human populations that cause disease? Why so, do- uh, so alleles are just are variations on a, okay, on a gene. Okay. So when you say disease, you're not talking about infectious disease. You're talking about some uh, a syndrome, a condition right, that's, that's undesirable. Right. Yeah. So so some uh, diseases, most diseases, have some genetic component to them, and we want to and those mutations that, that contribute to those diseases are at some... Pre- What's an example? Alzheimer's disease. What's an example? Um, Tay-Sachs, mutations that cause mm-hmm. Tay-Sachs are an example of a really severe... Uh, what are the symptoms of Tay-Sachs? So this is a, this is a horrible um, disease that manifests itself really early in life. And if you, if you inherit two copies of uh, this disease mutation, then you develop this disease and, and invariably die in, in the first years of life. So that's just an example of a really severe disease mutation. So the old saying in evolution, and we're not changing the subject, we're talking about disease alleles, as anybody would on (laughs) the show. Uh, In evolution, you only have to be good enough. So if there is a mutation that kills you, that would get weeded out pretty quickly. And weeded out, I guess, is a pun. That would get uh, eliminated pretty quickly, right? Right. So then the question is, well, why are they still there? And a long time ago when people started thinking about this, so in the 30s, they hypothesized that they're there because even though they do decrease in frequency for the reasons you say, because people who have them don't leave children, they also get reintroduced by new mutations. Uh-huh. And that uh-huh. creates this balance where they're being eliminated from the population but also introduced into the population. And so people develop models for that, and we can go ahead and test now, does that explain the frequency of Tay-Sachs? And it turns out it's a pretty good explanation for so, how in common other words, Tay-Sachs is. If a kid, a baby, had had Tay-Sachs in 1719, and that uh, that baby didn't reproduce, that kid didn't grow up, uh, but then would it be the same Tay-Sachs that you'd get in 2019 that's um, reintroduced or a different form? Um Pretty much the same disease, but not necessarily caused by the exact same change in the genome. So there's probably hundreds of places in the genome where a mutation could cause Tay-Sachs. So one of those reoccurred, basically. And these mutations, these are just completely random, uh, basically, errors in, in, the, in the DNA caused by 
by radiation, by by transcription errors when you're when you're when your DNA is reproducing. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's exactly right. So you're basically in order to reproduce, you have to retype out the whole genome, all three billion letters of mm -hmm. it twice, and there are typos. And these typos are totally accidental and they underlie these disease mutations, but amazingly, they also underlie ultimately all the adaptations we see. So when we look around us, all the biodiversity, all the intricate adaptations we can think of, at the end of the day, they have as their source these typos. But How again, do we those... repair damaged DNA? So there's this whole machinery in the cell that basically constantly scans the genome when it's being copied. Um, and checks. It's basically like an error-proofing mechanism, exactly like you might have autocorrect, and so, autocorrect doesn't uh, get things right all the time, as we all know. So, in one an expression you hear all the time, you're talking about diseases. Uh, uh, infectious diseases are something you're susceptible to or you're not based on your inventory or library of antibodies, right? But whether or not you can generate antibodies successfully must have something to do with your what you've inherited. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is there a way to manipulate genes so that we can anticipate uh, infections coming at us and, and, and deal with them in, in advance? Right. So the easier part is actually the manipulating of the genetics. The harder part is understanding what effects that will have. So we can, under, we can increasingly manipulate the genome, but what we don't know is if it's good for a particular disease, it might also be bad for susceptibility mm. to other diseases. If it's good in this environment, might it also be really bad in some other environment? There are a lot of people out there. How do you get enough genetic information to figure out what these genes are doing, what's getting you know, up-selected or down-selected? Right. Um, so... We have an increasing number of genome sequences from humans, hundreds of thousands, millions now of whole genomes that we can when study. You say from, we have, yeah. I mean, you've recorded the, the, or published. Or, from where? Right. Where, where do they come from? So the, the research community has access to them because they've been generated for biomedical studies mostly. So people's genomes have been um, sequenced, for example, in studies trying to associate genetic variants with coronary artery disease or for those kinds of goals. Um, but what's really interesting is that um, even though we sort of think of ourselves as having relatives like our family and then being unrelated to other humans, in fact, all humans are related. And we're related by this, this huge pedigree that traces back um, thousands of years. And so actually by studying some humans, we kind of get a window into studying all of humanity because of this interconnectedness. So we don't have to sequence all 7 billion people on the planet to have a really good idea of how humans evolved generally. But along this line, uh, I often... Now, who are my best friends, really, Corey? Uh, I would say primates of some sort, well, but I'm not... Well, dogs. Let's say dogs. Oh, <laughs> So I, I clearly was off base with primates. Let's go with that. Uh, Just with, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so people Canines. are fascinated with what breed of dog they're dealing with, what combination, what mix. They got extraordinary names. They got extraordinary uh, contractions to describe the combination. But they're all dogs. And the same is true of humans, yes? I mean, I say all the time, if an Australian interacts with a Norwegian or, or an Aboriginal person uh, in the continent of Australia interacts with somebody from Scandinavia, all you're going to get is a human. You're not going to get some new thing. Right. So do you have a larger mes message this way? 
like, hey, everybody, we're all related kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the coolest results that comes out of actually not so much population well population genetics and and also some computer science work is that it do, you don't have to go back very far before we all actually have the same family tree. And what I mean by that is, if you think about it, how far is not very far? Tens of thousands of years. That's nothing. Corey. From the perspective of evolution, that's nothing, <laughs> right? I mean, if we think about the fact that we probably had a common ancestor with chimps ten million years ago, it's a tiny sliver of that time before everybody on the planet has the same family tree. And that's, I mean, I, I actually find that really counterintuitive somehow and hard to come to grips with, but it's fascinating because, you know, we're also interested in who our grandparents were and great-grandparents and so forth. But if you go back not that many generations, then the answer is the same for everyone. And that's kind of strange. Kind of strange. So, and it's kind of cool. That kind of we, we really are a, a, a human family. So, but with that said. Uh, we have callers. We have callers. We have Nathan on the line. Nathan. Yes, hello, how are you? Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm located in southwest Virginia in a city called Roanoke. Roanoke's Roanoke, a vener- Virginia. Yeah, venerable, we, we the, love the Virginia crossroads, the many railroads there in the, the beautiful uh, Piedmont of the Appalachians. Appalachians. Yes, yes, gorgeous area. Take it. What's your question, Nathan? Uh, yeah, my question is, if one day we are to colonize Mars, could our genes eventually evolve and adapt to live on the planet, or would we have to rely on some kind of genetic engineering prior to moving there? Well, that's simple enough. Uh, so, Nathan, <laughs> let me just start by saying we discourage nowadays in the modern astrobiological world, we discourage the use of the term colonize. Instead, let us favor settle. When we settle Mars— Or populate, maybe. Populate. Do we need to do genetic changes in advance, Dr. Molly? Yeah, so we don't know. I guess we could. Um, We could have variation among us that would enable us to adapt to some uh, features of life on Mars. Um, Or it may be that life on Mars, in many regards we know it is, is so different from anything that any mutations that we already carry would enable us to respond to that, that no, we wouldn't, we would all die out before we'd have a chance to adapt. Nathan, the other thing you'll pick up right away is there's no air on Mars. That will be... That would be slightly problematic. Well, catch your attention for a few moments before you... Right, right. Right. I think you're definitely, you're definitely going to want a space suit for starters because I don't think you're going to be able to evolve that one fast enough. But that is a cool question. Right, right. Why do you, why do you have an interest in settling, populating Mars? Um, well, I've, I've followed you for quite some time, uh, Bill, and I, you know, I, I sense here on Earth there's a lot of climate change. Uh, along with a lot of new innovative stuff like SpaceX, and along with NASA programs, um, I, I, I see a more foreseeable future with that. So um, based off of this episode and around the title of it, I wanted to see if uh, that was something, you know, that we could possibly get to in time or if, you know, I, I've, I've even heard as far as the terraforming like dome cities i mean as as you know i know that's a little bit of like a fairy tale situation but um just kind of wanted to get all of y'all uh, two cents on it <laughs> well i'll say this though uh in an unrelated but related note i'm pretty sure we're going to have to aggressively genetically modify crops in order to feed everybody right. in the next 30 years and so maybe if you really want to go try living on Mars, 
maybe the technology for crops uh, modification will enable you to not die as fast as you would otherwise. So uh, thank you, Nathan. So, so Nathan, I want to I want to thank you so much for the question and for uh, making us think about how humans will be evolving on Mars now that we're starting to understand how humans are evolving on Earth. Carry on. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. Pieta? Is that how I said? Pieta? Pieta? Are you out there? Hello, Ben. Hello, Corey. Hello, Molly. Hello. Hello. My question is, uh, I, I'm from originally Iceland. Okay. And there we, the people of Iceland often practice uh, abortion on the intellectually disabled. Down syndrome mm-hmm. or sort of thing, something right. like that. Mm-hmm. So my question is, could this have uh, unforeseen consequences on other genetic factors? Pieta, are you concerned that there will be less intellectual disability in the future? Because we have no shortage of intellectual disability. <laughs> uh, I think the question here, but, here tell, me, uh, tell me if I'm, I'm getting this correctly. Are you, are you worried that if you're, if you're weeding out uh, one specific trait, you're weeding out Down syndrome or, or so, some other uh, mental disabilities, that you might be weeding out other things along the way inadvertently? Is that what you're asking? Yes, exactly. I, I myself have a mental retardation, and I, I, I so I worry about this. I, I think about this. I was lucky enough; my parents did not uh, have me aborted, but many others are, and I I think it could have unforeseen consequences. It's a great question, uh, Molly. What do you think? Right. So this is discussed a lot, uh, unfortunately, increasingly um, in the context of of potential embryo selection. And so there's a lot of discussion in many directions. But one of the directions is, do we really understand that when we select someone who we think might do better at school, we're not selecting for all kinds of other traits um, that we might not want to be selecting for? And the truth is, we don't know yet. It's a really hard question. Stick around for more science rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Science Rules is back. Well, here, let me ask the, the big question. Humans are still evolving in some way. Can you does your research tell you how we're evolving or, or what we're evolving into? So humans are still evolving definitely. That doesn't mean necessarily the exciting thing that people think it means because evolving doesn't necessarily mean adapting. So evolving just means that genetic changes are occurring, that some things are becoming less common and some things are becoming more common. Uh, curly hair maybe is becoming more common, hypothetically. I have no idea. Um, so we are evolving, definitely. I think what people are really interested, including myself, is are we still adapting? Um, are there still ways in which uh, we're sort of becoming better f- 
uh, able to have offspring or survive in our environment for genetic reasons. Well, is there a large enough fraction of the population that has access to the extraordinary technology that would enable selection of embryos for intellect? Is that a very big fraction? Well, now it's obviously quite small. Well, now it's a vanishingly small fraction. But over time, who knows? And I think that's why people are starting to ask those questions now. It's like in vitro fertilization used to be rare. Right, know, exactly. At least in and it, developed it's become, world. Right. Yeah. Do you have factors. any predictions about humans of the future? None whatsoever. Really? Yeah. You don't predict We're going to spend a lot of time on iPhones. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty safe prediction. Well, okay. Let me try to bring it a little more near term. Can you actually see adaptations emerging? Is there anything that you can see happening right now? Um, yes, but on incredibly short timescales. So um, I wouldn't say adaptations emerging. I, we can identify genetic differences that that lead individuals to um, live longer or sh shorter. These are so, minute so, differences. So, so like, what, but, what would be an example of that? Well, so we showed, for example, and other people have found this as well, that, that people that carry uh, mutations that lead them to smoke more, if they smoke, um, tend to have a somewhat shorter lifespan. It's not surprising because if you smoke more, you're more likely to get cancer, and that shortens your lifespan. Um, it's a, obviously a small effect, but we can, we can detect it. Um, of course, that's, again, is something that's environmentally contingent because if people didn't smoke, then that would not be a selective pressure. Okay. Oh, we have another caller here I'd love to bring into the mix. We have uh, Stephanie on the line. Stephanie, Stephanie, where are you calling from? Hey, guys. Um, I'm calling from Austin, Texas. How are y'all doing? Uh, we are good. How are keep, you? Keep it weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Keep it weird. Doing good, yeah. So my question is, is there a correlation between affluence and genetics disease risk between affluence and your and genetic disease risk so the richer your family yeah. are you more prone or less prone to get genetic diseases so there are diseases um, that are different uh, frequencies for example in different parts of the world um, and some of those diseases it's by chance and some of those diseases is actually because it's tied to the evolutionary history of that particular part of the world so for example sickle cell anemia is a kind of famous example of a of a disease that uh, is at higher frequency um, in places where there's malaria mm -hmm. because you get sickle cell when you have two copies of uh, the sickle cell allele, but it, the sickle cell variant. But if you have only one copy, then you're actually partially resistant to malaria. And so that keeps that disease allele in the population where there's a lot of malaria, but not elsewhere. So that's one example. And there are other examples like that of diseases that vary geographically. Um, and then because some groups okay. have 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 colonized others and so forth, that leads to differences in the prevalence of diseases um, across different groups, um, sometimes by chance and sometimes because of these different ancestry histories. So, Stephanie, did that answer your question? If you're wealthy, don't marry yeah. necessarily within other wealthy small family. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah don't, don't marry your brother or sister just that's because true, no yeah, matter that person's how wealthy also wealthy. You are. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm married, and I'm pretty sure he's not my brother, so I think we're good. Okay. I'm, uh, we're very glad <laughs> to hear you it over here. you are related. You're part of the human family. Don't yes. kid yourself uh, <laughs> the way people do. A little question to that. Um, so I've heard that – I've heard it say – I've heard it said that breast cancer is a deep disease of affluence or, you know, it, it disproportionately affects um, affluent families. Um, what – do you have any insight on that and – so what is true is that people who are 
uh, not at all affluent, suffer from a whole slew of other diseases, in particular infectious diseases that are not much of an issue in, in much wealthier settings or countries. And so kind of the, the types of diseases that affluent people have to worry about are different than the types of diseases that not non-affluent people have to worry about, um, but mainly because they're avoiding a whole slew of other diseases. Now, what about living longer? Do affluent people live longer so they live right. long so enough affluent, to get cancer? Right. Yeah. In this, that's similarly because they live longer, they might um, you know, worry more about cardiovascular disease and cancer rather than uh, things that happen. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, thank you for this call. Carry on and, uh, and, and keep Austin weird to the extent that it should be. <laughs> We have another caller on the line. Uh, Sean, are you out there? Yes. Uh, Sean, you where, are you, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Longview, Washington. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. I was I was uh, just going across the bridge a few weeks ago at Mount St. Helens. So, uh, Sean. Excellent. Uh, what's your question? Well, I've, I've got quite a unique situation to pose for you guys. Um, I am a de novo mutation of neurofibromatosis type 1, and I happen to have the genetic conditions of celiacs and dermatitis repetiformis. I passed these on to my son. Celiacs, I think we know celiacs is an allergy to uh, wheat. It's a genetic genetic intolerance to gluten. And for most people, it's not anaphylactic, but for me, it is. The question is, what direction is genetics going in order to assist people with just their daily lives in dealing with these types of conditions? being able to test and, and know that you should be testing everybody for, for a series of genetic markers, like celiac disease, because that's a disease that's now recognized as being uh, non-symptomatic. You don't have digestive problems, but you'll have health issues tied to it. If you were to be able to diagnose that as a routine. You mean to be, to be able, to, be able to diagnose it or to be able to kind of predict no, who, to who identify will get it? A list, to identify a list of normal, uh, a list of genetic conditions that every time somebody's tested for their uh, genome, those markers are automatically looked for just to be right. able to provide them right. with some basic health care. I think that is definitely a, a direction that, that human genetics is moving towards. I think one of the big goals of identi- of collecting these much larger data sets of genetic variation data and coupling them with electronic health records is to identify more cases of any specific disease and every specific combination of disease and learn more about those patients so that the patients can be uh, t- can know what happened to other patients with similar profiles and so forth. So I, I actually think that this kind of thing is, a again, slightly removed from what I do, but I interact enough with human geneticists who have that as their central goal, actually, uh, developing these kinds of resources and giving um, doctors and clinicians the ability to look into um, unified data sets to find other people who, with similar genetic profiles and, and be able to better inform their patients. Thanks for the call, Sean. Thank you. Science Rules will be right back. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You're listening to Science Rules. Now, Molly, if I understand correctly, you, you are working on uh, the Alzheimer's gene, uh, APOE4. 
uh, that this is a, a gene you've studied of sort of, sort of how it's how it's moving around through human populations. This is true. So what we did is we were interested in trying to find mutations that seem to influence lifespan of their mm-hmm. carriers. And that's the study in which we found also that these mutations in, in receptors that influence how much where nicotine binds, uh, uh, that influence how much you smoke if you smoke, influence lifespan. So we also found, and other people had found this as well, that uh, carriers of a particular mutation in APOE4, which is associated with Alzheimer's. This is a gene. This is a gene. Which we whimsically call what? AP? Well, I don't, but it has been whimsically called, as you say, APOE. And the particular variant, the particular mutation is called APOE4. um, And it's been associated by my group and others with with a shorter lifespan. This manifests itself only in its 70s. It's not a big effect, but we can start to detect its effect. Um, And we don't know whether it's really associated with Alzheimer's or associated with things that co-occur with Alzheimer's, like cardiovascular disease. Um, it's, but again, it's not, it's not a massive effect, but we were, we were interested in looking at this kind of thing, at mutations that affect survival and affect the number of kids that people have. Okay, so this is another one where I'm wondering, Alzheimer's is typically a disease that, that sets in late in life after you've already had kids. So does it ever get weeded out? Is it, is it just, are we stuck with it forever? Is that just part of who we are? I think it's not so clear-cut. So naively, you might think, and this is what I first thought, that exactly as you say, because it manifests itself so late in life, maybe it just doesn't matter and it's um, basically neutral with regard to... um, But first of all, men do reproduce throughout their lifespan. uh, And in fact, uh, one in a couple thousand offspring is born to fathers who are actually quite old and so wouldn't be born otherwise. Um, And then also, um, there are all these hypotheses about... Uh, the kind of sticking around to take care of your kids and grandparents sticking around to take care of their kids and the importance that that might have. So these things, these kind of ideas of inclusive Drag fitness. Drag people down. It takes resources right. to deal with an Alzheimer right. patient parent. It could be that or it could be the other way around that if you, you know, the other, namely if you don't have Alzheimer's, then you're able to you be, can a, be a nurturing grandparent. Yeah, you can help exactly. your survival. And your child can have more offspring as a result. And so those those things have to be considered too in thinking about, about how many descendants so, a mutation has. Now, Alice. Alice, are you out there? Hi there. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm from San Francisco. San Francisco, Wonderland, if you will. So uh, you have a question. Yes. Um, my question is about where the world is going uh, in terms of what the world looks like. So, so I've been told that ultimately the world will look a lot like Brazil, where you have a lot of um, you know increase in interracial couples and Ultimately, um, everyone will kind of blend together. And I'm curious to hear your perspectives on this and also uh, when you think something like that would happen. So, Alice, you're talking about facial features and skin color. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because I think it's interesting, right? This whole concept of uh, diversity of genes and in different populations, you know, coming together theoretically makes the gene pool better. I mean, from what I've learned, at least in science class, tell me if that's wrong. But, uh, you know, curious to get your perspectives on on what that looks like and how quickly something like that could happen. Right. Actually, because there's mutations constantly being introduced every generation, um, it's not the case that everything is kind of going to blend into the same thing because there'll always be a source of variation as well as this source of mixing. So we're not going to all be super fit Brazilian guys, Corey and I. That look Are you sure? Is there any way that we could? I'm be? hesitantly yeah. saying this, but no. Yeah. You will okay. Not. 
All right. I'll uh, I'll just make do with what I got. So we have this idea that it's just since travel and since transatlantic uh, travel in particular that uh, there's this mixing has occurred. But actually, we're learning that, no, ever since actually humans and Neanderthals are a nice example, right? Those are really divergent groups. And now we know that humans and Neanderthals uh, interbred and had they, offspring. They learned and, to love each other. <laughs> well, maybe they didn't even learn. Maybe it came very quickly. <laughs> Um, and so it's not – it isn't a kind of particularly particularity of our time. And, and uh, in particular, Europe, um, which has been studied a lot because uh, so many of our, our uh, fossil remains from which ancient DNA has been recovered are in Europe. You know, we see that what we think of as, quote-unquote, a European population is actually um, a bunch of quite diverged populations coming together over the past 10,000 years. Um, and so that's a recurrent theme. And again, it's much more of a social and historical set of events than it really is a, a kind of clear evolutionary dynamic. But there's something logical to what Alice is asking, that if everybody's mixing if this tendency to mix or this drive to mix is universal, then we might converge on a universal design, skin color and face feature. But I think it's going to be a few weeks or millennia <laughs> because novelty is always uh, valued. And uh, if you don't believe me, the Beach Boys have a minor hit, uh, The New Girl in School. So she's... <laughs> She's novel and therefore of interest. So novelty is, uh, in some cases, has a selection advantage. Bill, I think for our younger listeners, we might need to explain the Beach Boys were a pop <laughs> vocal group. Uh, they also, they, despite they their all, names, they were all males. Yes, <laughs> they, they, they were, they from were the actually part of California. They were grown men most of, during most of their career, <laughs> and they their harmonies <laughs> featured not only hitting the same note, but as the saying goes, the same part of the note. We digress, but that is an example of uh, genetic similarity creating a specific musical sound. Alice, that is actually a heck of a question, a fantastic question. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Appreciate it. Corey. Corey. Bill, it's lightning time. I can feel it. I don't yes. know. Sometimes I just... It's like the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. It's uh, probably not from uh, an electromagnetic effect. It's just it's time for the lightning round. Uh, it's being so close to you, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> sure it is. So, um, um, Molly, uh, doctor, it's time for the lightning round. We ask you a question. You give an answer that's pretty quick. If you could delete any part of your genome, Molly, mm -hmm. what would it be? I would probably add a slight appetite suppressant. Uh, ah. Appetite suppressant. <laughs> uh, yes. All right. If you have a favorite genetic mutation, not just a favorite gene, a favorite mutation. Yeah. I'm pretty. I'm pretty fond of red hair, so I'm going to go for uh, red the, hair. The mutation. ginger. You're oh. going to preserve. Yeah. Way to go. Uh, Somebody's got to look out for the gingers. <laughs> now, and then, what do you want to know next? What's your next thing? We've preserved the red hair. You got that's done. I want to know if corals are going to make it. That's what I really want to know. So do you want to preserve – do you want to do work that preserves corals? Well, in a, yeah. If I could, I would really like to do that, yeah. So, are, are you finding corals that are more resistant? Um, so people Give have – Give us hope. This is new for me. I've only been working on this for 18 months, and people know lots about this that I don't know. But, yeah, it, there does seem to be variation in how resilient they are, and it would be really good if some of them made it, if enough why of do them you made want, it. Why do you want to preserve corals? Because, uh, well, first, they're beautiful, and also, you know, some 
huge fraction of fish, a quarter of the ocean's biomass depends on them. So um, on that on that forest, that yeah. underwater forest uh, bastion of diversity. So with that said, this has been a cool discussion. I very much appreciate you taking the time to come in here. I am Bill Nye. I am Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the genetic evolutionary part of our universe, science rules. So if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to follow me on the electric internet for information about when to call into the show. I'm at Bill Nye on everything, the, the gram, the Twitter, the Twitter thing, the facing of books. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you remember, remember that technology, give us a call at 201-472-0785. That's 201-472-0785. Leave us a voicemail. Our guest today has been Dr. Molly Pishvorsky. Ah, it was, ah, I got a shrug. Thank you for coming in, Molly. We, it was just cool. You are studying us. You're learning more about humans and our place in the universe. How cool is that? And I very much hope you and your lab mates can preserve corals for, uh, for the world. Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell and Corey S. Powell, shown here, with extra production from Lisa Wang and Ashley Warren, who are also our call screeners. So when you call in, they they have a listen. Our engineer today is Jared O'Connell. Mixing and original theme music are by Casey Halford. Special thanks, of course, to Claire Rawlinson and Ashley Warren. Chris Bannon is the CCO, the Chief Content Officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Science Rules. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.